Welcome into this Five Clubs Conversation. I'm Gary Williams. This week, going to talk to somebody who has been better at what he does than anybody in golf for almost four decades, maybe even longer than that. And he's going to turn 80 at the end of the summer. He's somebody who won an event, which was kind of an opposite event on the PGA Tour a long, long time ago. But he has worked with Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Greg Norman, Fred Couples, Ernie Els. There's only one person who's done that. It's Butch Harmon. He's also done television for a long, long time. He has been in the middle of some of the biggest stories with some of the best players the game has ever seen. And he's got a lifelong memory to think about and to talk about all of it. That conversation is coming up next. With that, we welcome in, I think, the greatest golf instructor who's ever lived, Butch Harmon. How are you, my friend? I'm wonderful, Gary. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I, I got to ask you about a couple things. First, I got to share something with you. But, but more importantly, I want to ask you about the weekend you just had. Uh, you were at the 100th birthday of the oldest living major champion uh, that we have in, in the world, and that is Jackie Burke Jr. How was that? It was a phenomenal day. Uh, it was Sunday in Houston, uh, Saturday night, and all of Sunday morning they had one of their torrential downpours, thunder, lightning, inches and inches of rain. Uh, it was difficult to even get to the Club of Champions, but it didn't deter any of the members. We invited guests, or I had to guess there was over 400 people there. Jackie was alert. Uh, he understood everything that was going on when we would all tell our stories about him and our relationship with him. He'd, he'd laugh and smile when something was funny. It was just something that uh, I would have never missed, Gary. I've known Jackie Burke, as I said in my little speech. I'm 79 years old. I've known him ever since I was about six or seven. So I've probably known him longer than anybody in that room. And he was an incredible, not was, is an incredible man. Not only a great major champion, not only a great teacher, one of the greatest characters of all time, a person that absolutely loves golf. At 100 years old, his wife Robin tells me, he still goes over to the Club of Champions every single day of the week. Now, that's amazing. It, it, it absolutely is. I, I was lucky enough to spend some time with him a year ago, almost to the day. Um, and, and his vitality. Uh, and, and, you know, to me, Butch, as much as anything his way, there's a pleasantness about him. Um, there's a tenderness about him. Uh, that is very rare quality. I'm so glad you had that experience with, I'm sure, you know, again, not just him, but friends that you've known for the better part of your life. Yeah, we had, well, uh, Crenshaw was incredible. He drove down through that storm with he and his wife from Austin. Jim McClain came up from Miami, who Jackie meant a lot to Jimmy, like me. Uh, Steve Elkington, who has been yep. uh, there forever. Uh, Clay Walker, a country singer who's a member of Champions, who loves Jackie. And, and it, it was just it was one of those days that in your life, you will always remember it because, you know, I've known him for so long. He's such an icon in our game. Uh, you know, he loves golf. You know, he loves amateur golf. Think about that when he's always talked to the USGA about amateur golf and everything. Uh, he had one funny line. He said, you know, Jackie is a devout Catholic, goes to church all the time. He said, you know, golf has too many rules. 
He said, we could play golf just by the Ten Commandments. And if you obey, <laughs> obey every one of those, you'd be just fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, th these, these relationships, you know, a lot of them I know in your life uh, forged through relationships that your dad had with people in the game. And I, I just want to tell you, last week I was down at Seminole, and I was lucky enough to work there on the professional staff, oh, geez, 30-some-odd years ago. Um, I was showing these guys the aerial photograph that, that illustrates your dad's round of 60, which stands up to this day as, as the greatest and lowest round ever shot there. And what I was pointing out to them was when they, it, it points out the point-to-point, -point, four iron, five iron, six iron. Um, I, I was just curious because I knew you and I were going to have this conversation. Were you on the grounds that day? And so just run around uh, as well, a kid? I, that was 1947, believe it or not. And I was born in 43. I'm yeah. sure I was there, but at four years old, I sure wouldn't remember it. <laughs> I knew you were a you little know, the boy. Beauty of, the beauty of that round, I mean, it still stands today. Shot yep. in 1947. Uh, you know, my dad's been uh, passed away in 1989, and he holds that record, uh, 61 on both courses at Wingfoot and numerous other course records that still stand today. I know, I mean, you know, think of people think about Claude Harmon as a great teacher. They know he won the Masters. They they don't really realize what a good player he was. Oh my gosh! I mean, third and fifty nine at his home club at Wingfoot in the U.S. Open, obviously winning the Masters. I'm going to get to where I think you and your father should both reside here in a little bit. But I'm just curious because you know you mentioned your age and and you still have a, a righteousness and a vitality about you that that you. You like you like being immersed to whatever degree you want to be in the game. Instruction today, how much different is it now than it was 25 years ago, 30 years ago? Well, first of all, I will tell you I love golf. It's my whole life. This is what I've done. I've got a great wife and family who support me. Uh, yes, my age is a number, but my health is really good. And uh, as uh, friends of mine tell me, uh, I'm only 15 mentally, so that really helps. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, golf uh, teaching has uh, has evolved through the years. I mean, you know, what I what I teach today, I didn't really teach 10, 15 years ago. What I taught 10 or 15 years ago, I didn't teach 10 or 15 years before that. You move along. Uh, one of the things that has changed the instruction uh, through the years has been equipment. Equipment has changed. The ball goes further. It doesn't curve as much for the, for the, the good players, not so much for the average players. We don't have a club at speed to take advantage of a lot of it, but how much further they hit the ball, how much bigger and stronger players are. If you go back to the Hogan, Nelson, and Sneed era, you know, a tall person might have been 5'10 or so. You go even to my era when I played in the late 60s, early 70s, I'm 5'8". You know, there was an occasional tall guy, but most guys were right around 5'9", 5'10", 5'11", some six-footers, but not many. You look at the game we have today, it seems like the majority of them are all over six feet. They're all in good shape. They're much better athletes. So you have to equate that into your teaching. You have to take that into consideration when you're teaching, who you're teaching, what is their availability to practice? What is their uh, flexibility, their strengths in their bodies? Do they have any aches and pains? So there's a lot of things that go into it, but equipment was a big thing that we had to change our way of swinging and, and teaching. If you think you go way back in the old days with wooden clubs and soft ballada balls, you saw a lot of reverse C's at impact because they were trying to get the ball in the air. Now you see more chest on top of the ball, driving through the ball, 
because the ball jumps off the club face so much faster with a lot less spin. So you have to incorporate that into what you do. And then the other thing I will tell you, Gary, that, that in our family, the way it was instilled to my, my brothers and I, is that you have two things you can try and do. You can either teach golf to people or people to play golf. And we, we believe we teach people to play golf. What I mean by that is no two people are the same. You can't be a one-trick pony. You can't teach everybody to do the same thing because their body styles are different. Their flexibility is different. Everything is different in each individual. And then finally, the one thing that I have kept through all of my years of teaching that I learned from my father is never take away what someone does naturally. Mm. Just make it better. Because if that's their natural swing, it's going to always be there. What is, what is the difference between teaching and coaching? Oh, there's a big difference. Te teaching is something you're trying to create emotion in a golf swing, depending on the person's ability and their athletic ability. Coaching is you're working not only with the golf swing, you're working with the mind. Uh, I, I like to think of myself as both. I've had, I'm, I'm very successful as a teacher, and I think I'm a very good coach to all my players. And every one of my players, uh, tour-wise, is different. And you've got to know when to give them a hug. You've got to know when to kick them in the butt. You got to know when to make them laugh. You got to know when to give them some space. And every one of them is different. But your job as a coach is to get this person prepared to go to the first tee. And I think I've, I've had great success in being able to push a button on a different player, knowing their personalities, knowing their temperament, knowing their nervous system to get them to get to the first tee, believing that they're the best player they can be. You know, Butch, uh, I, I think I've shared this with you, and I'm sure you've heard it. Uh, Jimmy Walker told me, he said he's the great mind manipulator, and he meant that affectionately, that you mm -hmm. understand, uh, you, you, you learn these people's personalities, and, and you take all that into consideration when it comes to your messaging and the things that you do, and, and somebody may need one thing one day and something yes. the, the next. Um, how did you acquire that skill? I think from watching my father, my father was a, a great communicator, which I think is uh, one of the, the most important things if you're a golf instructor or any kind of teacher. Uh, you could have all the knowledge in the world, Gary, and if you can't communicate it to the students or the people you're talking to, then you're really not going to be very successful. And so I learned from my dad how to pump guys up and how to be always positive, not negative. Uh, and, you know, I've done that my whole career and I've had good success with it. And obviously, the older I've gotten in the, the 30 or 40, 50 great players that I've had the opportunity tour-wise to work with, I learned from them as much as they learned from me, and that's really helped me also. I read a line recently that we don't rise to the occasion. We fall to the level of our training. Um, who, who, Butch, who loves the pursuit of it, of the, all the great players, and you, there are very few you haven't over the last you know, 50 years that were not among the absolute best, if not the best. Who loved the pursuit the most? I would say probably Tiger Woods and Greg Norman. They both had that uh, ability inside to that killer instinct that we talk about in other sports to just be the best they can be and just dominate when they can. Uh, as you know, I've had the opportunity to, to work with the best players in the world for a long time, and I, I've had good success with them. And it's just a joy to be around these people. I just marvel at watching great players hit great shots. I'll give you an example. I'm going to go way back now. Uh, back at Augusta, before they changed the course, Tom Watson was playing one year. I, I guess it would say maybe sometime 
way back in the 90s or whenever it was. Mm -hmm. And I was following his group. I forget who he was playing with. And he was on the second hole and he hit a pretty good drive, but it just got past the the, the bunker there on the right. He's on an extreme downslope. I mean, a really extreme downslope. And I'm standing over to the right and I see him pull this club and I see it, the, the cut base is so small. So I realized it's a two or three iron. I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is going to be interesting to see. And Tom Watson hit the most beautiful high draw off of this downslope right into the middle of the green. And you know how hard that is to even hit a draw off that downslope. One let one less get it that high in the air. And I can re remember saying to myself, God, I love watching these guys play golf. They are so good. I just marvel at how good they hit these shots under extreme pressure. And I could go on and on about hundreds of shots I've seen hit. But that one has always stayed with me because, I mean, I don't know how he did it. <laughs> it was just amazing. I, uh, it, it's funny. I've got a question at the end that may be the answer to it. I, I, and that's the thing that I appreciate, you know, about you saying that is that you, you, you never lose sight of how much joy you get from seeing people do things that are so singular and so different um, and so extraordinary to, to the lion's share of the people who pursue this game to find, you know, whether it's solitary or an escape or the joy in it, but yet this finite number that can do it in a way that we don't even really identify with, that you see it all the time, but you never lose sight of how much fun it is to see it. Well, you know, you, if you look at, at golf today, and golf is in the best position I think it's ever been in. We've got so many good players that not one person can dominate. But I can remember back in the Tiger Woods era when I had him, 99, 2000, 2001, when he was playing better than anybody else. People used to say to me, like in 2000, when he won nine times, three majors, 67 scoring average, second longest hitter in the game, he hit 72% of his fairways and had a great short game. Well, heck, you couldn't beat him. And people would say, well, he's making the game boring. I said, are you kidding me? You better remember this because you're seeing greatness. See, and I've always loved to watch good players hit good shots under the most extreme pressure because, look, I tried to play the tour, and I say tried because I played 69, 70, 71. I wasn't that, that good or wasn't as good as I thought I was. And so the other end of the spectrum is on the teaching and coaching part, when you have a guy that goes out on the last day with a chance to win or has the lead and he plays poorly, I am really hard on myself. It's one of my guys because I start thinking, did I miss something? Is there something I didn't see this week that I need to pay attention to? And I'll go back and go through those rounds and the shots they hit so that next week we can talk about it and I can get inside their head and see how it goes. So, you know, I, I live and breathe golf. Golf is my life. This is what our family's always done. My father being the great player he was, the Masters champions, myself, my three younger brothers, very successful as golf pros. We love this game, and this game has been so good to us. But even at my age, at 79, I still learn. I'm still trying to learn. I'm still trying to get better at what I do. And it's a joy. But, you know, I'm semi-retired now. I don't work as much as I used to. I don't travel much anymore. But I'll always teach. I love to teach. I'll tell you one funny story about me. And I play with all my buddies here. Of course, I live on Anthem Country Club here in Henderson, Nevada. I live right on the 18th tee. I've got a group of guys I play with, like you do at your club. And I tell them all the time, look, guys, this isn't about you. I'm not helping with you with your game. I'm out here playing today. I'm going to try and shoot the best score I can shoot. So don't ask me any advice about your swing. After about four or five holes, I'll see a guy playing really bad. And I'll say, okay, I can't take it anymore. Here, you need to do this. You need to do that. So teaching is just in my DNA. When you um, the, the first interlude you had with Tiger was on on the practice tee at Lock and Bar, 
What, yeah. what did you see in person for the first time that you never wanted to change? And what was something that you knew needed to change? Well, I can tell you when it was. It was, it was August, uh, way back in 93. Uh, uh, he was a, uh, a teenager. He had just lost, uh, I think, his third round match in the amateur championship uh, at Champions, where I was this Sunday. And his dad brought him over. He was a skinny little kid. I still have the uh, the film uh, in my in my computers that I show people all the time. The one thing I saw, and this is interesting, he had the fastest unwind of a body I had ever seen through the ball since Ben Hogan, because Ben Hogan's body rotation was so fast he could rotate his body so quick, and I saw that instantly with this young man. I went, wow, no wonder he has so much power. Now he was he was not polished. He didn't really, uh, you know, know what he could do or what he thought he could do. Uh, it's a funny thing, you know, every good player in a tournament has a go-to shot on a tight driving hole. And so I asked him, I said, so when you get to a really tight driving hole and you have to drive the ball on fairway, what is your go-to shot? He goes, you know, I just tee it up, hit it as hard as I can and go, go find it and hit it again. And I'm thinking to myself, well, man, this is a cocky little you-know-what. But the more I got to know him, that was his mentality. That's how he played golf. And I, I looked at this and I said, boy, if I have a chance, <clears throat> excuse me, if I have a chance to work with this young man, this kid could be special someday. Well, we didn't know he was going to be who he is. But it was pretty impressive even at that age. Did you, when you went through, you know, when, he, when he blows away the field in 97 at the Masters, and then, you know, in concert with you, you, you go th through this reconstruction uh, 98, comes out the other end, wins the PGA in 99. Um, the, the, the willingness, the courage, really, the guts to change, something that clearly was, was more than effective enough. Uh, he was doing things that were extraordinary at a young age. Did you have any trepidation about the reconstruction? No, because we were still, <clears throat> believe it or not, we were still a work in progress at that time. You know, 96... When he turned pro, he only had eight events to play and to try and uh, get his card. Well, heck, he won two of them. He won yeah. in Vegas, he won in Orlando, and ended up in the Tour Championship. So he was really a good player. And then he goes on in 97 and wins the Masters, blows everybody away. And But we were still a work in progress. There was a, The club was a little across the line at the top. Uh, there were still things we were going to work on. So at the end of after that year, we sat down and we had our conversation. He, he goes, look, I don't, I don't like this position. I said, I know we're working on it. It's going to get better and better. I said, we can work on it. There's a couple other things we got to do. I said, we'll do it a little at a time. He goes, no, I want to do it all right now. I said, I want to be, I want to change all of this right now. And his work ethic could allow that. But I said to him, I said, well, well, Tiggy, you're going to have to play in events. It's not going to be so easy changing his swing from what it was. He said, I don't care. I want it to be as perfect as I can make it. And we're going to do it right now. Well, he only won once that year, one one tournament yep. that year in '98. Well, then came '99, 2000, and 2001, a stretch of three years that's as good as anybody that's ever played. But that's his desire to always get better. He was never satisfied. If he shot 25 under, I should have been 30 under. If he beat you by five, I should have beat you by 10. And that was his mentality, and that's what made him so great. Butch, I know you've been asked this a lot about, you know, when, when, when that type of relationship in terms of the professional part of it, you know, ends. I, I don't know if I've ever heard you answer this. Did you ever think at any point, even for a moment, that you would ever work with him again? 
Sure. I think that's the human nature. I mean, I learned that from my dad. He worked with a lot of people, would go to someone else. And I can remember saying to him uh, numerous times, I said, gosh, dad, I can't believe that guy left me and went with someone else. And dad would say, hey, look, maybe he felt like he learned as much as he could learn from me. And he wanted to hear it said a different way. And so, no, I did. I never thought this would last forever. Very seldom does it, to be honest with you. I mean, that's just the nature of the business. What have I taken, I think, five guys to number one in the world and four of them fired me. So, you know, that's just part of the business. That's just what it is. You do the best you can do. And eventually they're going to move on uh, for numerous reasons. It could be any reason. It could be uh, they're not happy with what you're doing. It could be they want to hear it from a different person. Maybe personalities didn't mix or something, but you can't take it personally. You do, and it hurts when they leave. But if you're open-minded enough, you know that that's just human nature, and that's going to happen to all of us, to be honest with you. Do, do, do you think, and I'm not making this specific to anybody, uh, that, that having an understanding of the golf swing can be a detriment to an elite player? Uh, you have different people... Uh, the ones that are difficult are the ones that are very analytical because they can overanalyze, analyze it. And I, you've known me a long time and you know how I teach. I'm very simple in the way I describe things. First of all, I, I, I was never a very good student in school, so I, I'm not the brightest bulb, bulb in the chandelier, but I'm very good at hooks and slices. And so I, everything I teach, I do it in a very simple manner. My dad taught us all. He says, look, when you articulate what you're trying to say you got to feel like you're talking to a second grader you got to put it in a language that they can understand what you're talking about and so i've always been able to do that to make things simple the key to being a really good instructor is not to, not to see a problem and try and fix four things you fix one thing that lets the other three or four fall into place and we Harmons have always been very good at that because we all have a pretty good eye at what we see and we were taught to do that and so, you know, it just is what it is. And you just go about it the way you go about it. No, no one in the world who teaches is trying to make the person worse. They think they're trying to make them better. Unfortunately, with what's happened with technology and technology is good. I'm not anti-technology. I use launch monitors. I use uh, video. We use everything at our golf schools and when I teach. But I watch these these young instructors and they very seldom watch the guy swing. They never watch the ball. They instantly go to their, their computer or their, their iPad and they start talking about angles and degrees and this and that. Well, when we started teaching when I was younger, there was there was no technology. There wasn't anything. But really the ball, where it starts, Gary, and you, you're old school, you get this, where the ball starts. The spin on the ball, the curvature, the shape, the trajectory pretty much tells you the path of the golf swing and the club face angle at impact. This gives you a total understanding of what you're looking at just by watching what the ball did. And today, a lot of these young instructors are so into the, the analytics of it is they start, they don't watch the ball. They don't watch basic fundamental posture, grip, stance, alignment, all the things we were taught to look at before the swing even happened. And when, that, when I do a seminar, I try and do one seminar a year for the PGA with different sections around the country. Uh, unfortunately, since COVID, I haven't done any, so now I can start back doing them. That's one of the things I always say. I said, look, don't be afraid to think outside the box. There is not one way to do this. There is not one golf swing. You can have a model you like, 
but it, nobody, you, you have a hard time fitting everybody into that model. Go to the World Golf Hall of Fame in St. Augustine, Florida. You'll see a lot of bizarre swings down there. The secret to playing good golf is repetition. If you can repeat the movement time and time again, you can play good golf. I mean, look at Jim Furyk's swing. Go back in time and look at other people's swings. They're not the prettiest looking golf swings you've ever seen, but they're efficient and they work. And that's the key when we're teaching. The, um, the, there's a story your brother Billy told me about when your late brother Dick was working with Lucas Glover one day and, and, your, and your son Claude, who is an, an elite instructor, and this was obviously years ago, and, and mm -hmm. technology had gotten to the place that you, you, know, you could look at these monitors. And, and according to this story that Billy told me, you know, Claude was looking at, he, was, he had his back to Lucas, and he was looking at the result of, of the data points on the screen, and your brother Dick said, hey, dummy, the data's in the air. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of truth to that, but Claude's of that generation, and he's into technology. I mean, he's, and he's really good at it. Yeah. He, they've got so much stuff at the Floridian, all these uh, weight plates and all this stuff that I, every time I go, I'm going down there in, in, a, in about 10 days to play in a member guest and I'll see him. And, and every time I go in the studio, I said, man, I'm not swinging good. Help me with all this. And he, he's got all this stuff. I said, hey, the heck with all this crap. Just look at the ball. Tell me what the hell I'm doing wrong. <laughs> Let me ask you, give me, give me a quick thought about some of these guys in terms of their greatest traits. What was Fred Couple's greatest trait? I would say the rhythm and tempo in his golf swing, no matter what the situation was. It just never varied. Norman. Uh, one of the greatest players that's ever played. Uh, won't get the credit for it because he only won two majors. Probably the best driver of a golf ball I've ever seen with a wooden driver and a, and a soccer ball. Mickelson. Mickelson, uh, amazing imagination, creativity, uh, not afraid to try any shot at any time. DJ. Raw talent. Raw talent and strength. Uh, a good competitor, but just natural raw ability. And then finally, Tiger. Uh, the poster child. He had it all. Uh, he had um, the physical ability to do what he wants. Mechanic, mechanics in his swing got perfect. Uh, his desire to win was unlike anyone I've ever been around. Uh, he he just wanted. He didn't want to beat you. He wanted to beat your whole family, everybody in the field. He beat everybody in the gallery. He just wanted to win by as many shots as he could win. You know, you you were back working with Ricky Fowler and. Mm -hmm. um, Everybody roots for him. He, there is, there is, there's nobody who has a crossword to say about him. Um, what, what exactly are you guys trying to either reclaim or refine with him? Because he seems like he's getting close based on the results. Uh, it's a combination of both, to be honest with you. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. As you know, I worked with Ricky for quite a while. Yep. And then in 2019, when I stopped traveling the tour, uh, he decided to go on and move on to someone else, which was, you know, I, I understood that because I wasn't going to be at tournaments anymore. But for me, his swing had gotten way too flat. Uh, the, the plane of the driver swing with a shaft was almost below his right shoulder. So I wanted to get him back to getting his, his left arm plane up more, get the club where it's not so laid off and get the club more down the line. So we had to change the left arm position going back the shoulder rotation that goes with it. And then the big thing, he was making very little turn. Even when he got the left arm plane in a good position, club was still laid off. And then when he turned his hips a little more and got his shoulder rotation more, the club went right down the line. And in all honesty, Gary, he, he's bought into these changes very well. He works really hard at it. 
uh, one of the keys, and this will help your listeners when they come and take a lesson or they're practicing, I make him over-exaggerate all the moves when he practices. I mean, just over-exaggerate it. Just turn your hips as far as you can turn. Get your hands to the, the sky as high as you can get them. Because then when you get in the heat of the battle, you don't have to think of the mechanics of a swing. He's coming along great. He, he still has, a, <clears throat> you know, the availability to fall back into some of the old habits. Uh, this past week, you know, I think he finished 11th at uh, the Farmers Down at Torrey Pines. Very hard golf course. Uh, did not putt very good the first two rounds. Struggled a little. Then the last two rounds played a lot better. I think Ricky will win uh, this year and maybe more than once. And the game, as you said a few moments ago, needs Ricky Fowler to play well. He's one of the most popular players in the game. He's one of the few guys in the game. Someone will actually go up and buy a ticket to the event to watch him play. And there aren't many guys that, that, that he can do that. You see the following he has with the kids, the way they dress like him and stuff. And you see a little better, oh, how should I say this? A little more happiness in his step and mm. the way he approaches golf now. When you're not playing good and you've been good, it's frustrating. And it's really, really frustrating. And I think sometimes you almost have to go all the way down and hit rock bottom till you come back. And, you know, he went from always being in the top 10 in the world to below 150th in the world. Now he's working his way back up that list. And Ricky's going to be fine. And all your Ricky Fowler fans, don't worry. He's going to get some wins this year. You know, Butch, I, I was within earshot uh, in 2017 in Aaron Hill's right before he was getting ready to walk off the practice seat of the first team, you said, put on your big boy pants today. Messaging matters. Um, yes, it as, as it pertains to him, um, does he, does he like thirst and desire the similar stuff from you every day? Like the things that you need uh, to say to no, him? We had, we had a plan. I explained the plan to him of what we were going to do. The interesting thing is this started in November and I didn't see him. We were doing all this, through video, he was sending it to me. I'd explain to him what I wanted him to do, how to do it. He would do it. Now, the thing I had going for me is Ricky's a member at the Medalist down there in Jupiter. And my brother Craig yeah. is also a member there. And so Craig was my eyes for me on the range. Craig, I would talk to Craig. I would show him the video. This is what he's doing. This is what I want you to watch. This is the way I want things to go. So between the three of us uh, back in November, we created this new motion. And, you know, he went right out and I think finished sixth in Napa and then went over to Japan and almost won the Zozo. And he, you know, he's continued to evolve and get better. Change is not easy and it's not easy to put it in play in a big event, but he's doing a good job of it. So I, I really look for good things for Ricky Fowler this year. And as you said, he's one of the nicest young men you could ever meet. I mean, I just love the kid. Truly. I was, uh, I was at, at Congaree a little over a year ago, and, and Bruce Davidson and John McNeely were watching Lucas Glover hit some balls. And I'm sitting here going, my God, the threads, the connective tissue between these two guys and, and the people they've been around, specifically your family. Um, and I, I say that as a precursor to this question. What are the fingerprints to Harmon instruction? Not just you, but the things that weave through from your dad to your brothers to your son. What are the things that, that, that stand out that will stand the test of time in terms of approach to what you do? Well, it all, it all starts with our father. I mean, uh, he, he was the greatest. He was as good a player that's ever played. He was far and away, I think, the best teacher the game's ever seen. Uh, he had the ability to, to help you quickly and see things. He taught us all what to look for in golf swings. 
you know, then my brothers went on and taught all their assistants. I taught my assistants and my son and Claude's done a marvelous job as an instructor. And uh, I think it all starts with that. You know, the two most influential people in my life in teaching were Claude Harmon and the great John Jacobs from London. Uh, and it's very simple. It's kind of all path and club face angle, uh, grip, very important. You know, people get wrapped up now with everybody shut at the top and stuff like that. Well, I'd rather see you shut than open. Although if you really hook the ball, you got to get the left wrist a little this way at the top and get that club face open. So, I mean, we, we've seen it all. I've seen all, you know, at my age, I've pretty much seen every great player that's ever played. Uh, even way back, uh, if you think about it, Tommy Armour and Craig Wood were members at Wingfoot. I, I played golf with Tommy Armour. I played golf with Craig Wood. I played golf with Ben Hogan when I was 16 because he was my father's best friend. So we in our family have been around golf forever. We have seen the best players that have ever played the game with our own eyes, not on film. We've seen them with our own eyes. I don't think we really realized it. Well, I think in my case, till I was about 40 years old and I started looking back and on, on everything that I had had a chance to personally witness and how all those things helped me be better at what I do. Then you take the four of us together. together. Unfortunately, Dickie's not with us anymore. He passed away about 15 years ago. But we talked amongst ourselves all the time about teaching. We would talk about students we've had. Hey, I got this student who's doing X, Y, Z. What would you do with him stuff? And that was the camaraderie we had in our family. Yes, we were very competitive competitive if you put us on the golf course but when it came to teaching i mean we used to do seminars together the four of us and i'm telling you they were some of the greatest seminars people could have ever seen and they were fun because we we harmons know how to have a good time butch uh, jim bones mckay asked me on the air four years ago almost five uh on golf channel should butch Harmon be in the world golf hall of fame and i said emphatically on live television absolutely and be honest with me have you ever thought about the merits of, of yourself, of the idea and, and, and why you're here, why, why you're living, of being in the Hall of Fame, because you should be. You should be. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I, I've, I've thought of it. Uh, I have recently because it's been brought up a lot. Uh, I think in the last one, I, I may have gotten down to, to the final list or something. Uh, you don't do anything to, if you're in the athletic business, uh, as we are. You, you don't do anything to become a Hall of Famer. Sure. You just try and be the best you can be at, at what your your trade profession is. Now, it would be a phenomenal honor if it happens, but I will tell you this, uh, Gary, if it happens, yes, I would be very proud, but my father should have been in the Hall of Fame. Totally agree. Never been a, a club pro in the world done what Claude Harmon did. I mean, last last club pro to ever win a major, uh, and he won by five shots, by the way. Yes. He didn't just sneak in there. And, uh, you know, so it, it would be bittersweet yes but if it if it happens uh i i obviously would be incredibly honored but i if it did happen it wouldn't be just me it would be a whole family thing in in, in my mind uh last thing about about instruction as far as present day when, when you look at a range and i know you're not traveling but you're aware of what the heck's going on and, and it's not mm -hmm. something that happened yesterday the presence of these teams so to speak voices God, there seems like there are a hell of a lot of voices that players are are listening to. I, I don't I'm not a fan of it. Your thoughts. I think there's too many. I mean, you got, you know, you got a swing coach, you got a short game coach, you got a mental coach, you got a physical coach, you you, you got you got a life coach, you you, you got a dietitian, you, you got everything. I mean, are you mean to tell me that if 
Ben Hogan and Sam Snead and Byron Nelson had all this, they would have been great. Hell no, they were great. And they worked it out in the dirt. It's just a sign of the times. It's just where we are, where we've gone to. Uh, in a way, that's one of the reasons I decided to walk away from the tour in 2019. Yes, I was worn out from the travel and hotels and restaurants. People have no idea what a wear and tear that is on not just on you, you physically and mentally, but on your family because yeah. you're gone a lot when you're doing all that. And it just I just got worn out. And I could see that I wouldn't say I was a dinosaur, but I was the old guy out there, you know, and, uh, you know, he doesn't, doesn't bring any camera with him when he goes to a tournament. He doesn't have any launch monitors with him and all this. And I, you get a kick out of this. I always tell people, I, when I teach, I use two launch monitors. They go, yeah, what, what are they? I said, they're right here, these two blue things that I'm looking at you with because I can see all these spin ratios and all this. I mean, I've done this my whole life. But it's different, and times change, you know, and you got to value, you've got to go along with the, the times. It's like I say, at, at my golf academies, we have all the latest equipment. We all use it. Yeah, I don't use it as much as my uh, assistants do that, that work for me because they're younger than I am, and, and that's their era. I think it just comes down to the ball in the club and the individual hole in the club. And I would have loved to have seen, and you'll get a kick out of this, I would have loved to have seen all this about launch monitors, especially if my dad was still alive. <laughs> he was, because he, he had a way of, of saying things that could make you understand. He'd go, hey, pal, let me explain something to you. See that machine right down there? Never hit a shot under pressure. <laughs> Never hit one under pressure. That machine right there doesn't know on Sunday afternoon on the back nine when that red light from that camera is burning a hole in your forehead and you know it's there. And you got to hit this shot. That thing doesn't know anything about your adrenaline system, your nervous system. And by, by the way, that machine doesn't care. And finally, that machine's never hit a shot, boys. So you better learn how to take care of it yourself. Now, that would be an old school guy talking. And I'm kind of along those lines myself, although I do use this stuff. I think now we're too wrapped up into it. We're too wrapped up, wrapped up into ball speed and club head speed and Yes, this information is good. I'm not saying it's bad, but golf is golf. I mean, you got to put the club face on the ball on the right path, and you can hit a decent shot. Uh, well, I've got you. I want to ask you about uh, the, the presence of live golf. Um, mm -hmm. And and look, you know, guys who 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 are playing live golf worked with them. Um, do you think that that there will be some type of detente or cleansing or resolution? Um, between these two factions within the next year, two years? I don't know if it'll be in the next two or three years, but I, I would think down the road about four or five years, yes. Look, I'm not anti-live golf like a lot of people. I think we live in a, in a, in a society of free enterprise. Uh, I think you have the right to do anything you want to do. Uh, you know, guys are, were offered a lot of money. That I would say you'd be a fool to turn it down. Uh, but you have to understand, and, and this is true in, in golf and in your whole life, there are every decision you make, there are circumstances that go with the decision. The guys that left the PGA Tour to go play and live, and I have no problem with it. I'll be honest with you. There's circumstances where they knew they weren't going to be able to go back over here and play at present time. So just stay over here and play. I don't like all the verbal pillow fighting that's going on between the two factions, the players, the, the guys who are running everything, Monaghan and, and Greg. I think we just need to play golf. If you're on the live tour, play over there. If you're on the PGA tour, play there. Now, I will say this, that the guys on the PGA tour that have been very vocal against 
the guys on the Live Tour ought to thank them because all of a sudden the tour found $250 million to raise their prize money to get those elite tournaments up to 20 million prize money. Oh, yes, just like Live. Uh, they got that PIP system to make a whole bunch more money. Oh, yep. yeah, just like Live. So, look, it's not the devil that's out there that's portrayed. And I don't like the way the news media portrays the guys that went over there because it's it's a Saudi Arabian money and, and they don't like the way they handle their, their countries and the way they do stuff. Look, our government does business with Saudi Arabia. I just read they sent they just sold $3 billion worth of military equipment. The majority of the biggest corporations in the world do business with Saudi Arabia. So I, don't, I think it's unfair because of the human rights issue to put that all on the golfers because all manufacturers and, and all big corporations do business with them. Now, having said that, let's just get along. Let's just play golf. Let this be what it is and let this be over here what it is. And let's, let's stop all the verbalness that goes on. Gary, you're old enough and, and I'm definitely old enough to remember an old uh, AFL and NFL and ABA and NBA. Absolutely. Various leagues. I myself, my tour school was in 1968 to get on the tour. It was the year that the pros broke away from the PGA of America. Jack Nichols, Arnold Palmer, all of them involved in that created their own with the PGA Tour today. And so I asked my dad, which Q school do I go to? They're having two that year. And he goes, you go wherever the players go. And that's what I did. And, you know, nowadays, I, I think when this first came out, there was a lot of negativity for it. We didn't know what it was going to be like. I mean, guys that have made a little amount of uh, money made a lot of money last year. And what's wrong with that? I mean, if you and I are in the same profession and I say to you, look, I'm starting a new business over here. I'll give you 30 or 40 times what you make today. Well, hell, you're going to come. You're going to come and do it. So let's just let it go on. I would love to say in a year or two years, it would they would get find a way to get back together. And I really hope they do because it would be better for the game. Uh, but competition is also good for the game in different ways. So we'll see how it pans out. And, and, and you know, I don't even think we know what the, the final ending for this is going to be, how, how it's going to turn out. So let, let's just hope that they get together because we all want to see the best players play. That's why the four majors are letting anybody that, that's eligible play in them. You know, Augusta's going to have 16 live members playing this year. That's a lot. It certainly is. All right, let me get you out of here, Butch, with these five quick questions. You mentioned a hell of a shot you witnessed from Watson back in the early 90s at Augusta National, but what, what is the best shot you've ever seen in person? Probably most of them that Tiger Woods have hit. <laughs> 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 to be honest with you, uh, I think the best shot I ever saw him hit was uh, years ago at, uh, where were we at? Hazeltine on the last that's hole. My, that's my number one. When he hit this three iron out of this bunker over the trees, over the lip, and he, he, he had to come back in the morning to do it. And I was doing the broadcast for Sky, sitting there watching it, and I was just marveled. Not only did he hit this phenomenal shot from this ter terrible lie in this bunker to about 12, 15 feet, then, of course, he hold the putt, too. So that would probably be right there also. And it was ripping about 25 miles an hour uh, Absolutely. When, when he hit that shot. All right, who is the player? And I don't mean this to disparage their ability, but, but this is to compliment them, the player who had the least ability but the biggest set of stones that you ever that you've ever been around? Wow, that's uh, that's a good one. That is that is really a good one. Uh, an overachiever versus an underachiever. <clears throat> I'd have to say when you look at his 
physique and stuff, even though he had a good amateur record and, and did, did win a major, uh, Justin Leonard, because of his size and the fact he did, didn't generate the club head speed that the, the other players did, but yet he still was a great champion and was a, uh, was a great player, someone who could really get the job done that I admired uh, a lot when I worked with him. Yeah, you consider 12 wins, a major, a player's, uh, when when th- when the proliferation of of distance uh, was was taking off, and he didn't just survive, he thrived. That, that's Absolutely. a very that's a very good one. All right, the last time you took a lesson, and who gave it to you? Well, it's every time I'm with one of my brothers. Oh. <laughs> we were back at Wingfoot this year. We were playing, uh, and I'd give me a whole. I'd ask one of them, "Why did I do that? How come I hit a bad shot like that when I'm a?" Whenever I'm down at the Floridian, I'm always asking uh, my son, Claude, and, and, and R.C. Ryan Chrysler, our, one of our teachers there, hey, take a look at me and see what I'm doing. Look, I can't see myself. You know, I, I, yeah, I know I'm old. And, and I, I know that I don't have the flexibility and the ability to do what I used to, but I, I still don't like getting bad shots. And uh, not only do I want to learn, I, I want get somebody help me out here. All right. Um, your lovely wife might be in earshot, but, but we all had a celebrity crush growing up. Who was yours? Oh, boy, that's a good one. Uh, let's see. My two favorite movie stars, I'll go way back. I'm going to show my age. Grace Kelly was one. And, uh, hmm. oh, geez. What's, uh, what was the young lady uh, who got killed in the boating thing? Natalie with? Wood? Natalie Wood, yeah. I couldn't, couldn't think of her last name. Those were the two that I, I found to be absolutely gorgeous and love the way they carried themselves. Yeah, very uh, elegant. Yeah. All right. Which reminds me of my, my lovely wife, Christy. So. They're, they're, excellent way to put a bow on that answer. All right. The last, last one. What's the most stylish golf swing you've ever seen? Not necessarily the best, the most stylish golf swing. Oh, wow. Uh, God, there's so many different swings. Stylish would have to be that looks good and has nice rhythm to it, uh, always in control. Uh, and his attire would go along with this. I'd have to say Payne Stewart. Yeah, that, 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 that's a good one. Listen, um, you know how much I value your time. I, I wish I got to actually see you every once in a while. Uh, thank you for doing this. And I look forward to seeing you soon enough. My pleasure, Gary. You and I have been friends for a long time. You do a phenomenal job of what you do, and it's just an honor for me to be on your show, buddy. Stay safe. Thank you. Really appreciate Butch Harmon's time today, and uh, I, I could talk to Butch about a lot of stuff. He is, he's always had this, this pragmatic righteousness uh, about him when it comes to everything in the game of golf. And, and with respect to the World Golf Hall of Fame, when, when you look at the list of the people who are enshrined, and the lion's share of those, those people are, are players, but there are tournament organizers, there are club chairmans like Billy Payne from Augusta National who's been enshrined in the World Golf Hall of Fame. There is another instructor. Harvey Pennock was in the 2002 class. Butch Harmon has been the greatest instructor to the elite player that the game has ever known. I don't know why that this is even a, a point of debate for the people who are in, in, in charge and entrusted uh, with identifying the people who should be in the World Golf Hall of Fame. I hope that the next class 
will include him, and it damn well should. Appreciate his time. Most importantly, appreciate you guys for not only watching but listening to this Five Clubs conversation. We'll see you next time.